Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, welcome to this uh, episode 368. It is a double feature today. It's not a three-host show, and so I'm doing a little intro here to let you know what's happening. Uh, we've got uh, two interviews. Uh, Sarah interviews Carrie Fryer Freeman uh, about her debut novel, Sedona, uh, which unearthed the secrets of a tourist town in the southwest. And then we have uh, The Wisdom of Maury. It's about uh, living and aging creatively and joyfully. It's a uh, it's edited by Rob Schwartz. Uh, he's the son of uh, Moy Schwartz, uh, the man who wrote the book, and who was the subject of the uh, multi-million copy bestseller Tuesday of Moy by Mitch Albom. Um, this is uh, this is a good book about uh, what it means to age, uh, and you know the focus obviously is doing so uh, creatively and gracefully. Um, but hey, before we get into those interviews, just wanted to let you know. Uh, We've done it before. We'll do it again. Uh, Sarah and I's book is out. It's uh, Death by Podcast. And we thought it'd be fun as co-host of Charlotte's Podcast to write a book about two podcast co-hosts who find out that one of their three upcoming author guests plans to kill them, but they don't know who or why. And Sarah and I uh, come at writing from a little bit different uh, uh, takes sometimes, and it was fun uh, to plot and plan together and blend our writing styles and edit one another's work and Really enjoyable to see the final story come together and print uh, ebook and audiobook. And it's out there. It's out there. And if you buy it, uh, hey, you're supporting the podcast. We'd appreciate it. You know, for the whopping price of $2.99, you can get the ebook, you can get the print book uh, for $9.99. And the uh, audiobook is uh, somewhere uh, in between there. So go out there and find out about uh, Death by Podcasting. And uh, hey, uh, just so you know, none of our real life podcast guests are believed to be murderers. So Sarah and I plan to continue podcasting as dangerous as it may be. All right, with that, let's uh, get started with uh, Sarah's uh, interview of Carrie. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words and where reading and writing topics take center stage. I'm your co-host, Sarah Archer, and I'm here today with Carrie Fryer Freeman to talk about her debut novel, Sedona, which was long listed for the Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Award, and which author Nikki Knight calls an immersive and intriguing trip through the dark side of a tourist paradise. We'll also talk about Carrie's blog, Books and Bevies, and much more, and some book marketing topics. Um, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Sarah, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to talk to you too. I was already just talking a little bit before about your your background with Sedona, which made me more intrigued to find out kind of the inspiration from this book. But um, as you might guess from the title, the book uh, takes place in Sedona, and the town itself is a major piece of the story. Um, you really bring to life that setting. I mean, there's crystals, there's vortexes, there's a lot of tourists, there's a bar with a literal hole in the wall, which I love. <laughs> um, so why Sedona? Why did you choose that as a setting um, to write about? 
So it, it all started with a screensaver. I was doing some free writing, which most authors do just to kind of shake off the icicles. I was working on a different book and the screensaver came up on my computer before I started writing. And it was of these beautiful buttes that you see all around Sedona that are these red rocks. And I thought to myself, what kind of a, a person would move there specifically from the south because we live mm -hmm. in north carolina um and what would they be doing there and so i started writing from my main character cal's perspective just to kind of go there and i just fell in love with sedona the the actual town and then my main character cal and it just gave way to this story that's amazing it's it's so cool how inspiration can come from the most unexpected places like a screensaver you would never think um, but just the power of that image, it's almost like, um, oh gosh, what do they call it? Ecrastic poetry, I think, which yes. is where you take a, an image and write a poem based on it. Um, and you wrote a whole novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I mean, setting obviously is a crucial piece of this novel. And I felt like it, it was really vivid. And especially now knowing that you never lived there or anything like that, you really managed to bring it to life. Um, did you do a lot of research? Do you have tips for writers on how to kind of create a powerful and evocative sense of setting in their work? Absolutely. I, I definitely did a lot of research. I know you've probably heard never look at an author's uh, browser history because mm -hmm. <laughs> we look up everything. <laughs> um, but for this specific, I spent a lot of time with Google Earth because you can see the landscape a little bit more um, looking at street views. That's kind of where I started the process. And then um, used the the power of social media with hashtags to find different places and see how people photograph Sedona itself. Uh, and because m most people who visit there go for the beauty of the landscape, it's really easy to, to feel like you have actually been there. So when I visited, it was neat to go to some of the places that um, other people had introduced to me, whether they knew me or not, through these mm -hmm. images. Uh, I would say for any author who is writing with that strong sense of place, that setting that they want to come alive, um, to really rely not just on the visuals, but also what people talk about they feel in those places. Sedona, of course, uh, you're talking about um, the the magic, the mysticism that people have felt. So, uh, for example, being able to sit on a butte, what does it actually feel like? What does the wind feel like? What does the, the ground feel like? And so I looked at a lot of blogs, travel blogs from people who had visited there and spent time there um, and, and thought about expanding those senses. So as an author, being able to expand your senses beyond just what it looks like to what it feels like, what it smells like um, is an, an important technique to make it come alive for readers. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the visual images are huge. And I, I love that you looked not just at kind of uh, like official tourist images or, or anything like that, but what people are, who actually live there are capturing on social media. Um, but yeah, like all five senses are involved. And how do they talk about that? That's huge. Um, and that kind of reminds me of something that I think it was Megan Miranda, who's a suspense writer we've had on the show before talked about, um, which is when you're writing setting, it's not just about describing the place. It's also about the character's relationship to the place and how do they feel about it? How do they perceive it? Um, and I think you definitely got that with Cal and, and that like real sensory feeling of actually being planted there, but also like 
how she thinks about Sedona and what her relationship to it is. I love that you say that, Sarah, because the I'm hoping that this book becomes a trilogy. It was always kind of meant to be expanded out. And so this first introduction of, of Cal living there for just a year, she still has kind of a one foot out approach to Sedona. She hasn't fully immersed into the culture that's there. And if you've ever visited Sedona, it really is a, a totally different experience than, than living or visiting any other place. I mean, it is visually shocking uh, mm-hmm. to be there. And so I, I love that as she is, is getting closer to being rooted in this place, she's starting to kind of take hold of that same magic mysticism that the other characters in the book already have um and she wants that and i feel like that's the beauty of a of a setting like sedona you you want to be more than just a tourist you want to you want to be like the the locals who live there it's really cool yeah yeah i can totally see that and that was one of the things that was really fun for me in reading this was getting to know the locals it definitely has that sort of like quirky small town feel where they have a lot of tourists come through, but the actual people who live there year round and who are local, it's a pretty small population and they're, they're very close knit. They all have backstories. They're all like in each other's business. <laughs> um, and the, even though Cal is the main character, it's, it's kind of an ensemble story too. And it's such a cool like cast of different characters. They can be funny. They can be entertaining. Some of them are kind of like mysterious or dark in some ways. Um, where did you draw inspiration for these characters? Do you ever base characters on real people? Uh, definitely some of their personality quirks, for sure. Um, but this, the the Sedona in in a very stripped down sense is a reimagining of the, the Wizard of Oz. And so I actually connected each of my characters to a different character in the Wizard of Oz. So there is a Glinda and there is a Scarecrow and there is a lion, you know, figure. And so those archetypes are very heavily connected in with my own uh, characters. So that, that was really fun to uh, put Wizard of Oz in a modern place uh, with people that would have uh, interacted in that space. So yeah, I think in, in a broader sense, my characters fit those archetypes really well. Yeah, I love that. And I, um, I'm i gonna have to go back through and look now and be like, okay, who's the Tin Man? Who's the Scarecrow? <laughs> like, trying to figure that out. Um, I, I did notice in your summary of the book, you referenced the Wizard of Oz and Cal as being sort of like a Dorothy figure, which I think is a very apt description, because it is this sort of like, fish out of water story where she's, she's coming in um, from Atlanta, even though she also has ties to North Carolina. Um, and she's pretty new in this place where everyone else kind of knows the place and knows each other. And she's figuring out what this town is all about and kind of getting into some of its darker secrets. Um, we see that that pattern a lot in stories, I think that fish out of water story. Do you why do you think that's so kind of enduring and popular? Why do you think that has appeal for readers or why did it have appeal for you as a writer? I think being in your early twenties, especially that, and that's where Cal is in, in her age, you constantly feel that way. I mean, you've left, you've left college or you've left home and you're in a new world that is completely different than you probably expected. 
and you're having to find your place there and you're having to kind of claw <laughs> there there really isn't an easy transition you just have to claw your way through and figure out where you fit and so i think that that is popular because of that um and and as we've continued to to grow as a society and we've learned more about technology i think we constantly feel that way in in every stage of our life where it changes where we're having to to figure out how we fit in the in the broader world that's so true even without literally moving to a new location um a lot of us feel like a fish out of water a lot of times i think (laughs) and yourself and your community and the world that's changing around you um yeah that's, that's a great point um and one theme, and you, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but one theme that, that stood out to me in reading this that I thought was really interesting was kind of like belief versus non-belief. Um, I mean, Sedona is a place where a lot of the history and the, the current tourist trade kind of revolve around beliefs, whether it's traditional um, Hopi legends or like the healing power of crystals or the trees, spirits in the trees, things like that. Um, and you have Cal as the main character. She's a little bit more cynical about a lot of that, especially when she first gets there. And also at some points in the book, kind of cynical about her belief in herself and her own abilities. Um, were there certain things that you're kind of wanting to explore with that theme of belief versus non-belief or um, that you wanted readers to take away about that? Absolutely. I- I feel for Cal, she is the voice of the reader in a lot of ways, where when we come up against something that is new or different, our first response may not be to immediately open our palms to it and say, yes, I agree. This is, I believe this too. It's more of a cynical approach of, I don't know how I feel about that. I'll have to think about it. I'll have to do some research, whatever. Um, I, I feel like that that's more of what we see than someone who just embraces something that's new. And I feel like for Cal's character, she did not have an easy life. She didn't necessarily have a traditional life. Her grandparents raised her. Her parents um, died when she was young. She, again, had to kind of figure a lot of her life out on her own. Um, and and that would have that would have made sense for her personality to be a little more guarded instead of, of be, being someone who would just embrace something that is brand new. Um, she lost her grandfather, and so now her grandmother is... is um, has cancer. And, and so I, I think for the most part, having her approach Sedona in that way was important so that when these little pieces happened, it, it wouldn't be believable for her just to say, yes, the, the magic mm-hmm. <laughs> instead, um, almost as an afterthought thought instead of, of, and, and keeping tabs of those afterthoughts until there was a spark of, well, maybe this is real. Um, and in visiting Sedona this past summer, I kind of approached it, not necessarily cynically, but more on like in most tourist town, it's meant to attract a tourist like myself. So mm-hmm. I can look at what it what it's showing me and say, do I believe it or am I just in for the ride? Um, and then once visiting Sedona and, and feeling their, uh, the aura of that place and, and the buttes that are there, the beauty of, of nature, I can see why. Um, that exist. And then the actual Hopi legends, the legends of, this is actually really cool. So the tribes that uh, live around Sedona itself, they would come and use Sedona as a place of, of worship, 
as a place like holy grounds, but none of the tribes would actually live in Sedona itself because of how the land was so holy. So it wasn't until um, the settlers came and actually settled that area that Sedona was even lived in. And so there, there's a really neat connection just with uh, people who have been there for ever <laughs> and have experienced that land having that magical, mystical uh, feel with it. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, that that is amazing. I hadn't heard that. Um, but yeah, it's just from my brief time in Sedona and Arizona in general, it's the landscape itself is so stunning and so just different, especially coming from North Carolina. It's like going to Mars. Like yeah, <laughs> you really, really do feel like like <laughs> there's something special about this place. And um, yeah, I can see how even going there, being cynical, somebody could like be convinced that there's more going on. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's such an amazing place. <laughs> um, well, so it's it's definitely a character story, and you got a little bit into Cal's like backstory and how that kind of informs her journey as a character too. But there's also a mystery element to this novel as well. Um, Cal starts to uncover. Some some kind of dark doings in the town and things that are linked to a local tourist site that may not be what they seem. And she begins investigating that kind of using her journalistic background. Um, I know a mystery a lot of times can be a very kind of complicated story to write and to plot out. How did you approach that? Did you outline the whole thing in advance? Did you know where the story was going before you started writing it? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did have what I called character outlines where I wrote each of the characters' backstories before I really jumped in. Um, My husband actually gave me that idea because I had so many characters, some that I didn't even use this go around that are just kind of sitting to the side right now waiting to be used. Um, But for the mystery itself, as I started to go down that path, I realized that it it was going to diverge more than... I wanted it to. So I would actually sit out and think about what each of my characters would do in those different scenarios and then just follow them. And so mm-hmm. I would say, um, you know, for some, I, and, I, and I think I'm, I'm one of the many writers that do this. I let my characters just kind of breathe and make decisions. And sometimes they make decisions I don't agree with. And I just have to keep letting them <laughs> make mm-hmm. that decision. <laughs> and I think that makes it more real for the readers. So they experience that. Um, Stephen King talks about that in his book, on writing where he says at some point you just have to uh, let it be organic and then decide which of those paths you really want the readers to, to accept. And that was a little bit easier because Cal was, was my main, my main character. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up having to stop writing the book for a month because I didn't know how it was going to end. And I felt like I was forcing it. So anytime I tried to write an ending, it didn't feel it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like it paid tribute to my characters. So I did not write for a whole month, ended up writing some other things instead. And then when it clicked, I came back, wrote the last three chapters within a couple of hours and was so excited because I felt like my characters were jumping up and down celebrating with me. Like she's finished. We're done. Um, And then it felt better. It felt like it was meant to be at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That, that must've been an amazing feeling, especially after being stuck and being like, you've gotten everything and then you're up at the ending and then you're stuck. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is where the characters want me to go. Um, And that's, that's also really interesting that you, I think you mentioned you are thinking about doing this as a trilogy. Where are you at in that process? Have you started writing book two? So book two and book three are somewhat more outlined than the first one, because I did want to make sure that, again, all my characters had a map. So I would say I have a map for where they're going to go. I'm going to explore a little more of Sedona in terms of the specific places that are there. There are so many neat spots that Cal would not have 
gone to in the first year where she's trying to take root in this community. So I want her to branch out into the community itself. So some trails, some different other touristy spots that are in that area. Um, I also want her to go into a little more of a connection with the history that's there. There has to be a reason why Grandma Ruth really wanted to come to Sedona. Other mm-hmm. than the healing, what is her connection to the land that's there? Because um, that was not explored in the first book. Uh, there, And then hopefully by the third book, I'm going to start pulling in some of the locations geographically that are around Sedona, like Jerome, uh, which is an amazing spot <laughs> that is was known as one of the most wickedest towns of the West. It was a mm-hmm. literal ghost town for a long time that they rejuvenated. And so I'm going to be pulling in some of those places too. Uh, of course, you're going to have your same players. And then some of the, the different characters that were only minor characters in the first book are going to start to, to rise into more major characters in the next two. So, yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about the next two books. <laughs> yeah, that that's exciting. And Grandma Ruth definitely has like more to say than what she said in the first book, I can tell. She has a lot oh, yeah. going on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I want to talk to you about your blog and some other kind of general writing and book marketing stuff. Um, but first, do you have a passage that you can share with us from the book? Yeah, so I, I chose one that's towards the ending of the book where the action is starting to pick up. So I'm not going to give any major plot spoilers, but I will say that at this point, Cal and Des are, are, have figured out that they need to go back to Belle Butte Touring Company, which is where a lot of the action takes place, where kind of the core of the mystery is, if you will. And um, they need to find some real evidence to use against who they think is the bad guy. Um, and so they are concocting this plan to go up. And throughout the last couple of chapters leading up to this point, we find out that there is this massive storm system that is moving in. And during, actually during this time of year in Sedona, they do have pretty big systems that do move in that can flood entire trail systems and areas. And so it would be kind of dangerous to be up in this specific spot where they are. So you'll kind of hear some hints to why. Otherwise, you might wonder, why is rain such a big deal? <laughs> well, their rain is a big deal. Um, um, so yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start reading at that part. So you're gonna get to hear a couple of different voices. You'll get to hear Cal and then her sidekick Des, um, who is the bartender at the Vortex, which literally has a hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we'll jump right in. Um, okay. We have to find out. I'm going up there tonight. Cal, you're crazy. There's a storm, a big one, one the news is saying will flood the canyons. We may be unable to make it down from there if we go up. I can deal with a little rain. The worst that can happen is I get fired, she said, walking toward the jeep. Des ran behind her. Or arrested. You can't just break in. Can't break in if I have a key. Cal shook her keys in the air and opened her jeep door. Des opened the passenger side. I don't like this. I'm coming with you. Are you sure you could get arrested? Oh, I'm coming. Night had fallen fallen on the desert, and a drizzle bathed the butte in clouds and mist. Only a few road lights were leading up to the butte. Cal planned their break-in as they drove, thinking through the camera placements and alarm system. The path of least resistance would be the back door, but she would need the main building keys. All she had were the keys to the cabin and the locker room. So what's the plan here? I'm not going in blind. Des had been hitting his hands on his legs, making beats since they started driving. His anxiety was palpable. The cabin. Clark and Naya would possibly have keys in their lockers. We can pry them open, snag the keys, and get in through the back door. And if we aren't lucky, 
Let's not think about that. The parking lot was well lit, but the rain was coming down steadily now, leaving puddles in the dirt as they approached Bellevue. Cal parked to the side of the road, and they hiked around the periphery in case someone else was there, though no other cars were in sight. The last time we came to this cabin, we almost, and then we did, so we don't have to talk about what almost happened, Cal interrupted with a whisper. She heard Des chuckle behind her. Do you hear that? Des was turned toward the butte, looking up as a flash of lightning lit up the space around them. Sounds like water. Well, it probably is. Remember the waterfall? It was the first time Cal had thought about the supernatural waterfall in weeks. The rain must be filtering through the rocks. This is the first big rain since the company was built. They quickly made their way to the cabin, unlocked the door, and started for the locker room. Cal stopped to grab a toolbox from the closet. The lights came on immediately as they entered the locker room. Shouldn't we turn those off? Des asked with a deep breath. Jeez, Des, nervous enough? Why are you breathing so hard? Could it be because we're breaking the law? Have you ever done this before? Des asked as Cal fumbled with screwdriver against the metal. Loads of time. I spend most of my weeknights breaking into lockers. The screwdriver slipped from Cal's hands and bounced on the tile. Des picked it up. This is one of those fancy lockers. You need a key code? And do you happen to know Clark's key code? Cal shot back. Nope, but I guess I bet I can guess it. Des put the screwdriver down, took out his phone, and turned on the flashlight. He held it close to the four-digit lock, cleared the wheel, and slowly clicked through each number. He finished with a viola as he opened the locker. How did you do that? Cal asked, astonished. I wasn't always a bartender, Cal. The locker was in disarray, complete with Clark's uniforms, glasses, loose change, and bandanas. They took the cloths and shook them, hoping the keys would appear on the ground. Dang it, Clark. Cal brushed her hands through his hair and kicked the clothing on the floor. I guess we try Naya's locker. She may have a key. Or, Des interrupted, I could try picking the lock. No offense, but up until tonight, I thought you were the cleanest bartender I'd ever met. And now that little bubble has popped. You can pick real locks, too. I haven't done it in a while, but I probably can. But if there's an alarm, it'll sound. It would sound even if there were a key. As long as we get to the cave, I don't care if we get caught. If we get caught, they get caught. Cal shoved everything back into Clark's locker, and Des removed a couple of tools from the box. The rain was falling harder, splashing down the side of Bellbute and making ruts in the dirt toward the main building. They splashed at the back door. Des went to work immediately. This is a nice lock. Very new and stiff. Thanks for the commentary, but you can pull this off, right? What was that? Cal and Des froze, rain streaming down their faces in the darkness. Crunching and splashing, she whispered. Did you hear it? It could be an animal, Des answered. Whatever it was stopped moving. Should I go look around the corner? Cal motioned toward the side of the building where the light from the parking lot streamed onto the ground, sharp and fluorescent. Are you crazy? Des returned to work on the lock, quietly moving two objects into the hole with his ears pressed to the knob. Are you almost done? Cal's voice was low and urgent, her eyes darting around the back side of the cave mouth. Narrow gap was black at night, looking like a mouth gaping open. Lightning flashed red and violent against the rocks, sending a thundering roar echoing through Bellbute. Jeez, Des said calmly. I haven't seen a storm like this since I was a kid. Aha! With that, Des turned the doorknob and pulled the door. Cool air rushed into their faces. You're a genius! Cal grabbed Des's face and kissed his lips quickly before stepping in. Well, I have a couple of tricks up my sleeve. Get in here! Cal started to close the door when she felt a force blocking its path. What the? She whispered and peeked through the crack. A hand, an arm, a shoulder, a face in the shadows braced the door from closing. Boo, said the voice in the night. A distinct smell of whiskey and beer drifted in the building, and they lay stagnant. 
Leaving us at a point of suspense there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I also want to know more about Des in the next two books because you, you throw some stuff into that section where it's like, oh, there's a lot more in his background than what oh, yeah. we got to see here. <laughs> um, that was a lot of fun. But in addition to your uh, fiction writing, you also run a blog called Books and Bevies um, where you feature different authors and their books and each one is paired with a beverage recommendation to go along with reading. Um, it's a lot of fun to scroll through. I mean, you, you get some great book recommendations in there too, but just seeing the pictures of the authors posed with like their martinis and their lattes and stuff. <laughs> it's great. Um, so I, I definitely recommend checking that out on Carrie's website. But where did the idea for uh, Books and Bevies come from? How did you decide to start the blog? So it actually started when uh, I was doing some writing and I was just looking out there to see what kind of marketing was available for authors. And most of what I saw were wonderful blogs. They were great, but they actually were charging authors to be a part of it. And I was like, oh man, that's so unfortunate for authors out there who are just starting, mm -hmm. who, who just don't have the, the marketing finances to pay for something like that. And so I wanted to do something that was free for any author out there, whether they were indie or, or traditionally published, to have a space where they could reach readers. And so the Books and Bevies idea mostly came from my love of books and beverages. And mm -hmm. I, I always love to see how authors would mention drinks over and over again inside of their books from like Edgar Allan Poe when he wrote uh, The Cask of Amontillado, where by the end of it, you're like, I really want to try this beverage, even though we read that with high school students. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> what? Um, but yeah, that it's one of those things where it's not on accident. There are reasons why authors choose beverages to talk about in their books. And so I thought, how cool would it be if we could reach authors and say, well, what is a beverage that you would recommend your readers drinking while you are reading the book. And then think about the layers of information that that shares with the reader and also engages them on a totally different level. So we were talking earlier about how when you research a setting and we're trying to sell that to the reader, it can't just be what it looks like. It has to be what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? And so a drink kind of does that too because it has all those layers. It has the taste. It has the feel. Um, and so then the reader gets to, to know the author and the book on a different level. So it's been such a neat uh, experience to, to get to meet the authors through their drinks and then to see their logic behind why they would actually pair it. And I, I kind of did a, a, a trial of this when I was first thinking about it with my husband. I was trying to get him to read a Ruth Ware book. And I said, what if I make you a um, chocolate martini to go with this this book? And he said, why would you do that? And I told him why. <laughs> I, would, I would pair this drink with it. And he was like, oh, that was so much fun. I was like, okay, this is going to work. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I test, I kind of test drove it too. I started to pair actual big time traditionally published authors, their books with a beverage and, and I would tag them on social media and mm -hmm. they would respond back and they would either say, Oh yes, that's it. Or they would say, actually I would try this. And so I love how even they would get into it if I was trying to, to pair something with their books that they were, they were putting out there. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's such an original idea. Um, and it's a lot of fun for the, the readers of the blog and of the books, but I'm sure it's a lot of fun for the authors too, because 
I'm sure you've you've experienced some of this now promoting a book like you tend to do a lot of the same sorts of promotions over and over again or answer the same questions and being asked to think about like what beverage would you pair with this that's something totally different yeah. um, and just engages you on a different level and it's it's creative um, and of course I have to ask what beverage would you recommend to pair with Sedona oh my gosh I, I would have to say in honor of cow it would be a bourbon and I would probably stick to, to one of the a, a one that would make some really good old fashioned. So kind of like a Woodford or um, I mean, if you want to go a step higher, you can go with a, a Buffalo trace, something mm-hmm. like that um, without any ice uh, would be perfect for it because she is so she's, she's witty, she's dry, but she is complex um, and she's easy to kind of take in sips. I would not gulp Cal down because she is so quick witted, um, sharp. <laughs> so, yeah. Definitely a bourbon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. That makes sense. And it's a great way to think about the character too, like comparing her to the beverage. Um, it's such a it's such a fun project and it's a good way to offer, obviously, like free publicity, like you were saying to the authors who you're including on the blog. I would imagine it's also been helpful for you as an author now too, to network and to kind of build your platform. Um, and we see a lot of that these days. I think authors have to get really creative about how they market themselves because it's such a crowded marketplace out there. Have you found running a blog to be an effective tool for your marketing? Or is there anything else you've tried in terms of like book publicity or marketing techniques that you've found to be helpful? I would say the blog has been the most helpful and probably because it is a creative niche that hasn't been done. It has helped exposure and probably for it to be a little more palatable for, for people because it's not just one more. I'm not writing reviews of these books. I'm, I'm just kind of showing them as, as a, a place for readers to come to and say like, oh, I'd really like a, a book and beverage that would match. Um, but I would say anytime that you can market yourself in a creative way, it's going to be very helpful. And the, the best thing about featuring authors is that they do become your friends. I mean, that I, right now I'm writing a foreword for one of my original books and bevies features for their book that's going to be coming out in the next year. And they, they actually did something very similar for me. And so it's a lot of give and take. Um, it, it's become a community. I always send a, a little gif of the Beatles doing like a cheers like welcome to the books and bevies family because we do become like a really tight-knit family um they help each other out whenever they're wanting to to get something new about their book out into the world they're really great about forwarding things and um retweeting and sharing and it's just it's such a really warm family feel even though it's big um so I would say anytime as an author that you're trying to, to get yourself out there, I would say just help help people to get to know you because if they know you, they really will care and they'll care about your success. And um, yeah, I just kind of build your family and your community around that. Yeah, that's so wonderful how it's become like a little community through the blog too. Um, and I think that's so true. Like book marketing, it's very personal. You know, you're selling something that came from within your heart and your mind and people want to get to know you as the author. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a great way of like putting a personal spin on it uh, and, and getting to know other people on a personal level too. Um, and I think you also have, this might actually be, depending on when this interview comes out, it might already have happened, but I think you're planning an event in Charlotte this fall too, right? Um, with Nodaw Brewing, was it? 
Yes. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure when that's going to happen, but we have, have been in conversation with NoDOT about doing a special beer release for Sedona that has a hot profile that would match with a lot of the location of Sedona itself. So hoping to have some of those West Coast um, hops that will help bring out the, the pininess of the Whispering Pines. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. And we'll have to, um, if that happens before this interview comes out, we'll have to try to feature it in our newsletter too. That'd be awesome. Um, I always love to ask writers about kind of the nuts and bolts of their writing process. Like what time of day do you write? Um, do you use a computer? Is it longhand? Is there a place you like to write? Do you have a beverage of some sort with you as you're writing? <laughs> like what does a sort of typical writing session look like for you? I'll have to say that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm actually in my office right now. My office is a great place to work. It is away from the hustle and bustle of the rest of my household, and it's nice and quiet in here. So I definitely mm-hmm. write in here. I would rather write in the evenings than the mornings. I know some writers are big morning people. That is not me. And I tend to write better if I have larger chunks of time. I'm not a – I can't put 20 minutes in, 20 minutes. I really get into my characters and my setting, and I feel like I need to be there for a longer period of time. So – I, if I if I write, I want it to be for an hour or longer. And I do love to get away to write anytime in nature. Um, there's a spot that's about 20 minutes from my own house where I'll go. And if I can drive there and be there all day and write, I can knock out a large chunk of my books just being away. Um, even if there's a lot happening around me in those places, there's something about just being away from your everyday life that it just draws that inspiration out. So my process is definitely more longer chunks of time, um, late afternoons, evenings, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, that makes total sense. And I love that too, like getting into nature, especially for writing this book and this series, I would imagine just feels really appropriate for that setting. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well, last but not least, I would love to ask you if you could go back in time and give a piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, something that might have helped you um, along the way in your writing career thus far, what would you want to tell your younger self? Just finish. <laughs> as a younger as a younger writer, I felt like I always started projects and then I would put them down and think this isn't good enough, and then just move on to the next thing. And I feel like if I could just have sat in it long enough to finish, then I probably would have a few more books done by now. So yeah, just stick with it and don't give up and just allow the process to take the time that it needs and Mm -hmm. finish no matter what. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. I think so many of us start something and then like inevitably somewhere along the way in the project, you're probably going to get to a point where you're like, I hate this. What is this? What am I doing? (laughs) And then you have some new idea that's like, oh, well, that will be better. (laughs) And that is constant as a writer Mm -hmm. I and I'm still I'm still learning the whole process is still a new process for me but I find myself constantly coming up with book ideas and writing them down and Mm -hmm. saying oh this one's so much more fun I should do this one I'm like no I need to finish where I am I don't want my characters just sitting there waiting for me like a video game like what am I gonna do next Well, you did it with this one. You you got to like a, a tough point as you're figuring out the ending and you gave it the time that it needed and you finished and here you are. It's a published book. Right. 
<laughs> so it all works out. <laughs> well, Carrie, thank you so much for being here. This is a lot of fun. I'm excited for the the rest of the trilogy um, and excited to keep you know following your blog. And uh, thanks for sharing your work with us. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Hey, listeners, uh, welcome to this uh, second interview in our double feature today as uh, part of episode 368. We're featuring Rob Schwartz. He's the editor of the book, The Wisdom of Maury. Rob is the son of Maury Schwartz. He's the man who wrote the book and who was the subject of the multi-million copy bestseller Tuesday with Maury by Mitch Album. Uh, Maury Schwartz passed away from ALS at age 78 after a career as a social psychologist and teacher, and the book draws on Maury's experience to address how to live and age creatively and gracefully. Looking forward to this interview. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Yeah, and congratulations on the publication of The Wisdom of Maury. There's a lot to talk about here, and uh, before we talk about the book, um, you know, which focuses on how your dad approached aging, let's uh, introduce him to the listeners uh, a bit here. Um, tell us a little bit about your your dad. Uh, what kind of father, husband, and friend was he? Sure, sure. Um, my dad was, uh, as you alluded to, a professor of sociology at Brandeis University. Um, he was really very much beloved by his students, and he was really one of these people that really paid attention to everybody around him. Very warm and loving person. He was really a wonderful father for that reason, and I think husband. You'd have to ask my my late mother that uh, she passed away two years ago. But um, but yeah, I mean, he was just a very engaged and attentive person. And you could also see that in his, you know, his profession. His students absolutely loved him. And that's actually kind of one of the reasons that Tuesdays with Maury came about, because Mitch Album was an ex-student of his. And when Mitch found out that my father was ill, you know, he came to visit him and he got so re-engaged with my dad and what he had to say that he came back 14 weeks and then he wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury, which, as you said, became this unbelievable bestseller 20 million copies sold just unbelievable yeah well um do you have uh, this probably might not be a question you were asked in other interviews but do you have any early memories of your father that uh left an indelible impression on you as a as a child that may have foreshadowed what you eventually found in this manuscript that's an interesting question. I have a lot of early memories of my father. Do they actually foreshadow <laughs> anything in this manuscript? That's a little bit more complex. Uh, I certainly have a lot of early memories from childhood, you know, treasured memories of every kid who has a close relationship or, you know, their father is present for them. I mean, my father teaching me how to ride a bicycle is an indelible memory that I have. Um, there's lots and lots of others, but I'm not sure that any of them actually foreshadowed this book. You know, my father was really, like, active, and, I mean, he wasn't super athletic. Let's not, you know, get confused. He was actually a very small man, but he was very athletic. I'm sorry, sorry. He was very uh, active and, you know, dancing and swimming, not really into, you know, competitive sports, but, but those kind of things. He swam every day. He loved to dance. He was very light on his feet. So he was always sort of bouncing around. And uh, I have a lot of memories of that. And maybe in some ways 
that foreshadows what he talks about in this book, to remain vibrant, to remain active, to remain engaged in life while you age, he thinks is crucial. Mm. Well, you've got some great pictures in the book, too. Um, and you're coming to us from uh, Cape Cod, which uh, my wife right. and I visited in September. Um, and, and there's a picture of him. He's got his arms crossed. He's got his hat backwards. He's got his sunglasses on. And it says, more enjoying summer on Cape Cod. So what's the story of your family in Cape Cod? Oh, that, I'm great. I'm really happy you asked that question because it's a big part of my childhood. So we lived outside of Boston. I actually grew up in a town called Brookline, which is famous for certain things, including John F. Kennedy being born there. And my father taught at Brandeis, which is in Waltham, Mass. But we used to spend the summers on Cape Cod in a town called Wellfleet, which is two towns down from from Provincetown, the very tip of the Cape. So it's the they second before the They have the best the oysters, the best oysters in Wellfleet. I had some really good, really good raw oysters in Wellfleet. Absolutely. Very famous for that. Very famous for their raw oysters. And it's a charming little town. There's lots of little ponds. So mm. you go in the summertime, if you get a house, you get the rights to to swim in a pond. They're not open to the public. You have to have a house nearby. And the ponds are much warmer than the ocean. So that's the, the beautiful uh, summers in the Cape. And of course, I also came to Provincetown a lot. It was, you know, an artist colony. Of course, now it's very well known as an alternative uh, uh, town. But um, yeah, a lot of sweet memories. And that's, that's funny. I didn't even make the connection that I put a photo in the book of my dad from Cape Cod. And here I am on Cape Cod while we're doing this interview. Yeah. And uh, we were up there and went up and down Commercial Street, which listeners, if you've never had a chance to go, you should go experience this. It's uh, something, what, what you call it just a bit different, right? Uh, well, we can make it explicit for your listeners if you like. <laughs> That's right. It's an, it's an LGBTQ town. There's a, yeah. the big presence, but it's incredibly warm and welcoming to everybody. There's no, you know, there's no, nobody is excluded. And as you say, Commercial Street, especially in the summer, is so bustling and there's so many things to see and do. And of course, the ocean is just spectacularly beautiful. It's right on the sea. Commercial Street runs right along the shore. And in fact, we are in a, a guest house on Commercial Street right now, oh, that's as, great. You, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm uh, the the father of a of a gay daughter, and um, it's uh, you know, I told my daughter, I said, I'm going up to P Town, and I said, I hear it's very gay friendly. And she said, No, Dad, it's very straight friendly. <laughs> Because that, that is that is accurate. I mean, yeah. uh, she's probably making a joke, but that's yeah. accurate. I mean, yeah, I th probably I so. like, yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't want to guess percentages, but yeah. I would say the majority of the people are probably alternative, yeah. shall we say? Here. Yeah, no, it's, but it's a great environment. It's a great, it's a great place. It's lovely. And you talked about swimming in these ponds. Um, I don't think many people swim in the ocean. There's some great white sharks up there, right? <laughs> There are. There are some sharks, and it's funny you should mention that because I did a presentation at Provincetown Library last night, and one of the librarians was telling me about this cove that's part of the – it's on the ocean side, but it's protected by a sandbar. So there's, he said there's no sharks and no seals in there, and I was like, oh, that's a good thing, and it's warmer. <laughs> It's warmer than the ocean because it's protected cove, so that it's, it's shallower, so the sun heats it up better. So it's kind of a secret uh, that the locals, shall we, uh, shall we let your, your listeners in on the secret? Yes, sure. Okay, so if they come to P-Town in its swimming weather, apparently Hatches Harbor is, it's not really a harbor, it's a little protected cove with no boats in it that's beautiful for swimming in. 
And apparently that's where all the locals go and, you know, the people in the know, shall we say. Okay. And the other secret is because, you know, because I love to read and write and do a podcast with authors, I went to the second floor of the Provincetown Library and there's something very unique in the children's section, is there not? Yes, it's incredible, right? Yeah. They have the recreation of a New England whaling vessel in full scale. Right. So we're talking about <laughs> a 120-foot-long boat exactly. Yeah. Re it is a reproduction. It's not an original boat. But if you've been in the Provincetown Library, it's an old Methodist church. It's a big building, but you would know there would be no way that you could uh, bring that boat in there. So, of course, what they did was they built the boat in the space, but it is a full recreation of probably a 120-foot Boston or New England uh, whaling vessel, and it's really spectacular. I think in some occasions you can actually go on it, though you're not mm. allowed to go on it, gen generally speaking. Yeah, I was just thinking what a great place to go read and write next to a sailing vessel. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. well, I don't know, we got off track here talking about fun things about uh, Cape Cod. But let's That's get back fun. to the, let's get back to the book. Uh, so the path to this book, um, I mean, you didn't decide one day, hey, I'm going to publish a book about aging creativity, creatively and joyfully. You, I mean, you're a journalist, you're a music film producer, entrepreneur, but you found this manuscript uh, in, I suppose, a desk after your father right. passed That's away. Right. Tell us that story and tell us sure, sure. why you decided to, to take on this task. Sure. Um, well, I'll actually bring you back a little bit before I found the manuscript, just to let you know that I had a lot of experience with this manuscript before I even rediscovered it. So in the summer of 1989, so a long time ago, I was just a, a young man, uh, I had just come back from traveling in Asia, and India, and Tibet, and China, and it was the last time I ever stayed at home with my folks. I lived at home for three months before I moved to Japan. I lived in Japan for many, many years. Um, so in the summer of 1989, my father was working on the manuscript, which is the book that we now have, The Wisdom of Mori. And we talked about it. He and I talked about it at great length. We bounced back ideas. And, you know, I was thinking about, even though I was a young person and he was writing about aging, I was still considering his ideas and giving advice. I wasn't actually a journalist on the time. at the time. This is before I, I began my career. As, um, I was basically just a, high, a college graduate. And um, then I moved to Japan. And of course, we know the whole story. He got sick with ALS, which is the reason that he put the manuscript in his desk drawer after he had finished it. He had completely finished this manuscript from the first word to the last word. He put it in the desk drawer and then he got ill. And of course, Mitch came and visited him and Mitch published Tuesdays with Maury after my father passed away, actually. And, you know, it was a great success. And years after that, I would go back and forth between Tokyo and Japan, uh, sorry, Tokyo and Boston. And I was on uh, in the house in Boston. My mother still owned it at my father's desk, writing something for a newspaper or a magazine. And I pulled open the desk drawer, as you alluded to. And there was this big bound black uh, thing with a huge cover, not like small or, you know, <laughs> something. And I was like, what is this? I mean, it didn't, it was obviously not something that had been published, but it looked, it was big. I actually still have the original manuscript. And I flipped open this hard, you know, cover, this hard, really, you know, firm cover, not something flimsy. And I realized it was this book that my father had written 
and never been able to publish. And then I realized because of the success of Tuesdays with Maury that we had an opportunity to publish it. So, of course, I reread it and I thought about editing it since that's what I do professionally. And um, I think that there's an incredible amount of valuable advice. And not only is there a huge amount of valuable advice, which, of course, would be enough in and of itself, but is really a very, you know, continuous line of thinking from Tuesdays with Maury. So people who love Tuesdays with Maury, I think, will get a lot out of the wisdom of Maury. A lot of the ideas are just sort of expanded on. It's more um, expository writing. You know, Mitch wrote Tuesdays with Maury in a very specific way, very succinct, short sentences. Very, You know, it's a very thin book, Tuesdays with Maury. This is a longer book you know, more writing, more explanation, all sorts of different kinds of writing in this book. It's not only my father's voice, but he uses poetry and stories and newspaper clippings and interviews. There's all kinds of different kinds of writing in there. But I think that there's a real continuity with Tuesdays with Maury. So I think that we have both things. It's valuable in itself you can also see sort of the roots of Tuesdays with Maury because of this book was, of course, written before Tuesdays with Maury, even though we've just published it this year. Mm. So there are two aspects uh, to the tagline for this book. One is aging creatively. The other is aging joyfully. There's a lot of right. discussion about ageism in the society with other people, you know, have stereotypes about older people. And in some respects, he was trying to bust those stereotypes in what he's doing in this book. But Let's talk about each one of those separately and, and maybe, uh, I guess, the question here, did he lead by example here when you talk about aging creatively and aging joyfully? And do you have any examples of that? Sure. Yeah, I have a lot of examples of that. Um, but I'm going to address the first thing you said because you've really hit the nail on the head. I mean, we could roughly divide this book into two sections. The first section would be a little bit shorter, but this first section addresses exactly what you started the question with, which is addressing ageism, you know, showing that it's really a a wrong-headed idea that aging people can do whatever they want. I mean, of course, we all have physical limitations, but you have physical limitations at any age. But aging people can really make whatever they want of their life as long as, you know, they have the proper attitude and approach it in the right way. And he was really trying to dispel this idea of aging. And I think, you know, it's more... I don't know, popular isn't the right word, but it's more understood in this day and age. But you remember, my father was writing this book more than 30 years ago. So, you know, he was on the cutting edge of of attacking ageism, so much so that he actually coined a term. He created his own term, which was age casting. And age casting comes from the, the movie term typecasting, when you force an actor to play only one type of role, that's typecasting. Age casting is when you try and force an aging person or a senior person into one specific and only one specific role, which is basically to sit on the sidelines and do nothing, right? And so my father thought this was sort of narrowing it down to like, this is what ageism does. It age casts people. So he coined that term. It's in the book, and I hope it you know becomes widespread. So that's the answer to the first part of your question. The second part is, yes, there are many techniques to help people live creatively and joyously. And and we can go through them if you want, just like one, two, three, four, five, six. Of course, my father explains them and gives lots of examples in the book. 
but I certainly can can tell you what they are if you're interested. Yeah, I am. Um, I would just want to inject a comment here because uh, my recent novel, Deadly Declarations, was set in a retirement community. When people ask me, why did you set it in a retirement community? I said, well, if you want someone to, to solve a mystery uh, and they're an amateur, wouldn't you want somebody that has a lot of life experience? Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, who better to solve a 250-year-old mystery than people who've, uh, who, who are smart and and, uh, and have been around the block, so to speak? But yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about um, some of these things that uh, help people age creatively and joyfully. And uh, also, I think it's a choice people need to make, right? Absolutely. My father would agree with that 100%. He would say it's primarily about your attitude and what you choose to do and how you choose to live your life. That that would be the primary thing, right? And so then the, the techniques or the, the suggestions that my father offers, they're really a lot and very, very different ones. I'll give you two that are, are practically opposites, not opposites in, in um, the way you incorporate them, but just in sort of uh, mood. So the first one was my father felt that it seemed to him as people aged, they sort of lost humor from their life. They became humorless. And he thought that this was outrageous and really wrong-headed. He thought it was so important to have humor in your life. So he says, find whatever makes you laugh and pursue it. Make sure that, you know, you laugh as often as you possibly can. If it's, you know, every day, that would be obviously ideal. So, you know, make sure you incorporate laughter into your life and however that works for you, right? So uh, that's the first one. Then the second one is kind of the opposite mood. My father thought that meditation was extremely important. He started meditating relatively late in life and got much more intense about it. So he thought that that meditation was uh, extremely important. And he got more intense about it as he got older and then, of course, when he got ill. And, you know, he says meditation helps you calm down helps you focus your energy, helps you relax, you know, just all of these things that are very important for, for everybody, really, not only aging people. And, um, you know, it, it's just something that, that he thought was really a key technique that can help you in, in, um, while you age. And in fact, studies have shown this. I mean, I saw one study that was done over a large number of seniors, and it said that seniors on average, seniors who meditated, lived five years longer than seniors who didn't. So that's a pretty, you know, mind-blowing uh, statistic. And, I mean, there are a lot of studies out there about it. So those are two things that, that are just techniques that you can uh, – implement in your life and i can go on there's like five or six but i don't want yeah. to drone on too long no that's fine i've got a little i was noticing on page 83 where he talks about this he says engage life actively and fully face reality as much as you can be as self-reliant as you can be hopeful and optimistic about the future maintain intimate relations uh yet seek solitude when you need it use your energy for a project that keeps you involved in the world and resist the pull toward passivity, isolation, and withdrawal from your community. Exactly. So he's basically exactly. saying, stay at it, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I've listed these things out, you know, sort of like numbered the one, two, three, four, five. But if you read the book, it's much, my father explains it much more like you just did in that paragraph, the things are woven together. So for example, two more things that I tell people are techniques that my father is suggesting is the first one that you just said there is 
remain involved with life, figure out what interests you and pursue it. You know, keep learning, keep being involved with your community, keep being involved with activities. And the best way to be involved in activity is it's something that interests you. If it interests you, you're going to want to do it. You're going to want to, you know, become more involved with it. And at the same time, you'll actually, you know, make new friends. You'll meet new people. And he, my father was really focused on honoring the relationships that you have and paying attention to them, your family, your friends are, of course, crucially important, and also making new relationships with people. He says, you know, people who age seem to, like, cut their world off and make it so small and, you know, isolated, and that's just the wrong way to live, you know? Try and make your world as expansive as you can, as you're comfortable with, obviously. Don't go outside of your comfort zone. That's not really what he's suggesting. But he's saying to expand your world, to keep learning, to keep engaging with people. Yeah, so it's such great advice. I mean, people ask me, well, Landis, why'd you wait until your late 50s to write your first book? And you didn't even start podcasting until you're 60. And I said, well, you know, why not? <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's things to learn. There's I'm, I'm constantly continuing to learn uh, techniques in my writing and also in, in the podcasting world. And speaking of uh, the joy of life, you've got a little uh, a few sentences you're going to share with us from the book. Yeah, right? I'll, read a, I'll read a little bit. Um, as I said, uh, I, I uh, had an event in the Provincetown Library, and I gave away all the books to the library. <laughs> but I have a little, a little paragraph that I've pulled out here, uh, which I love. Um, it's very short, but I'll read it. It's from Chapter 8, which is called Aging Well. And this section is called Joy of Life. There are a lot of little sections in the book where my father just sort of waxes on what he thinks is important. And this one is one of them. Permit yourself to be joyous even ecstatic, whenever you can. Every day, find something to laugh about. Let the laughter fill you up whenever it occurs. Be playful and have fun in circumstances that are appropriate. Look for the humor in a situation. Be non-serious and take things lightly often so you don't feel yourself to be a dour person. That's good advice. Uh, be joyful. Yeah. Yeah, be playful, exactly. don't be a dour person. There are a lot of things, right. and the book explores this, there are a lot of reasons to be dour and sometimes get depressed when you age because your body uh, breaks down. You you know, right. you could be, you right. could have a debilitating disease uh, that your father went through. And did you find that, uh, I mean, he went through this, the ALS, and that wasn't easy, I'm sure. Right. Did, did he, how did he handle that? Right. Well, a lot has been written about that and a lot has been, you know, talked about because, of course, my father was rather public about right. his disease. You know, he went on Nightline with Ted Koppel three times yeah. talking about his disease. And I mean, obviously, he had a great attitude towards it. He said, I'm going to live life to the fullest while I'm ill. But people sort of misconstrue that to think that my father got this fatal disease and he said, oh, never mind, I'll just right. live life to the fullest, just just like didn't affect him at all. That Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he was incredibly depressed and sad and morose when he found out that he had a fatal illness and he was given 12 to, to 18 months to live. Mm. So literally, you're talking like a year to a year and a half. Your doctor tells you you only have a year, year and a half left of life. And as I said, he was an incredibly vivacious, lively guy, full of life and energy and stuff. So this was crushing news, and it took him a while. And he talks about it, actually, in Ted Koppel. He was depressed for a while, 
and he made a conscious decision. And this is what I was stressing before. And I think that this applies both, you know, for aging and if you have a, a fatal illness. He decided, I am not going to let this be the way that my life ends, that I'm going to be morose and depressed until I die. I'm going to make a decision to live life as full as I can for as long as I can. And when it's time to go, it's time to go, you know, and that's what he did. And it's not an easy thing, right, to make that decision. He had to struggle to get to a place where he could engage with the world and go on Ted Koppel Nightline show and talk to people about life and death and aging and what is important in life values and stuff but as we know that's what he did in the last year of his life he engaged people and he talked about it and he said very clearly this is when i'm most alive when i'm relating to other people when i'm having an interaction with them and sharing that's it's great advice and, and another thing your your father focused on was this concept of uh, hope versus fear and you being a journalist you know that headlines are grabbed with fear-mongering stories sometimes, or the the, the the worst things that can happen. The, the the hopeful stories and the nice stories, yeah, they're fine. You know, people see, but it really takes an effort to get your mind to focus on the hopeful side of life and not be pulled down by all the fear and everything else that's going on around us in the world. And he and he talked about that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is this is another thing. There's there's a lot of stuff in this book where it's pretty deep. I mean, it's written in plain language, and everybody will be able to understand it. But my father looks at it from both sides, and he had this philosophy that he called the tension of the opposites, right? And you can't have one without the other, right? You can't have joy without pain, right? If you never know pain, you're really never going to know joy. So it's the same thing. You know, it's a continuum between hope and fear or hope and hopelessness. And it's up to you to decide where you want to fall on that continuum. I mean, sure, there are a lot of things in the world which are fearful or, you know, are um, make us worried about the future. But there's also a lot of wonderful things in the world. And it's really up to you what you want to focus your energy on. Yeah, there's some interesting stories in Chapter 8 about... Uh what other people did in their later years in life to stay yes. engaged. And there's some, some of yes. the common denominators are that they're curious people. They engage with other people. They like to travel. They like to study. They like to read. They like to write. They like to play instruments. They, you know, they sort of do the artistic side of things, but they're just constantly curious, right? Yes. Yes. But I think, I mean, I, I'm not contradicting what you're saying at all. I think all of those things are true. But I would hate to think, hear someone hear that and think it's limited to that. You don't need no, to you, be an artistic person, right? right. It helps because it's a sort of self-expression, but you don't need to be an artistic person. And curious, I think, is important. But the key that you said there that everybody can do is engaged. Yeah. You need to be engaged. You can't dis Once you disengage from people in the world, then you're going downhill really quickly. All right. Well, a couple of writing life questions real quick. You, you say it's your... Um you know, in your career, you've been an editor, but uh, editing your father's work is probably a different kind of challenge. Uh, you know, when you're slicing and dicing some author's, other author's work, it's one thing, but when you're cutting words out of your, your father's path, t tell us about that. How was that? Right. That's a good question. Um, so there's a couple of things you should bear in mind, and I'll give you a little bit more information so you'll be able to understand. So first of all, as I mentioned, my father wrote this book over a four-year period from 1988 to 1992. 
So that's a long time to be writing a book. So there was a lot of repetition in it. When you're an editor, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds very familiar. You go back, okay, he said a very similar thing last chapter. Then, then you know it's okay to cut something out. When it's just repetition, it's okay to cut something out. For the most part, that's what I was doing, cutting out repetition. And some of the sentences were just too long. He's made his point. We can cut this sentence off here. So it wasn't like I certainly, my major focus was to try and maintain my father's voice, obviously, because he has a very unique voice. You can hear it in Tuesdays with Maury, and it comes through, obviously, really strongly in this book because these are his words. So, you know, I, I just trimmed it down a lot. My father was an academic and also wrote this book over a long period of time. So a lot of stuff had to be trimmed down, whether it was repetition or sometimes he's like, here's a list of ideas. And then he would make a list and it would be like 17 items long. It's like, okay, that's too long. We need to get this down to a manageable, like, you know, six items or something like that. And I think if he had been, obviously, I believe if he had been sitting in the room with me when I would have been doing this, he would have said, yeah, okay, I, I see what you're <laughs> saying. I understand that people aren't going to deal with 17 item long list, you know? And, and I was also very much uh, blessed and helped by the fact that my mother had actually edited much of my father's academic work throughout his distinguished academic career. And I write about this. I add two essays to the book, one about my father and one about my mother. And in the essay about my mother, I write about this, that she edited a lot of his work. And when I decided to put publish this book, she was a huge help to me. And she and I went through like the first 20 pages and she showed me how she would edit it. So I was put on the path by my mother and someone who had a deep experience with editing my father. So I knew, you know, the direction to go. All right. Well, a couple of final questions here. What, what is it about uh, your father writing this book or this book itself that makes you uh, most proud? Um, you know, I think it's just the, the positivity and the inclusiveness, the idea that you know everybody can live a full life no matter how old you are no matter what your physical condition is that you know if you take the right approach to it you can live a full life and you can be joyful which you know is it relates to the passage that i read and if you had a chance to uh spend another day with him um where would you do it wow 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 that that's an emotional question um you know, I don't think it would be necessary. The, the setting would be that important. I mean, I'd love to do it in Cape Cod or in our house in, in Newton, Massachusetts. But yeah, I mean, I could talk about how much I miss my father and how long it took me to properly mourn for him for, for a long, long time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it would just be amazing just to sit and talk with him. I mean, just, we can never go backwards in time, right? But just to go back in time, to sit and talk with him, but it would be so incredible to talk to him about the stuff that's happened after he's passed. I mean, he doesn't know anything about Tuesdays with Maury, right? Mm. He never saw a word of it. He has no idea that 20 million people are reading his words, that people in China, in Mandarin, are reciting his words on a play on stage. I can tell you all kinds of stories about how popular Tuesdays with Maury is in China. It's just mind-boggling. He would be ecstatic to hear all of that. Uh, good, good for you for uh, 
keeping uh, the conversation going that uh, that he started. And uh, Rob, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Landis. I appreciate it.